Let's pray. O Holy One of God, we thank You that because You indeed saw no corruption, that You made a perfect sacrifice for Your people. We thank You that You loved us first and that You loved us enough to give such a sacrifice for us that we may be redeemed, that we may be restored to our Creator. Lord, we thank You again for Your Word, for Your truth. What a blessing it is. And we just pray again that we would have open ears, hearts, and minds to receive it, that it would indeed transform and reform our minds. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Will you turn with me to Mark's Gospel once again? We're in continuing on in chapter 1. We've spent several weeks now looking at the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ and the, and the implications, and then we follow that up, as, as Mark does, with the testimony of our Lord's temptation in the wilderness and, and why that's theologically significant, and then leading up to what are our duties. We looked at last week as Christians in the midst of temptation. Well, as is characteristic with Mark, the word immediately comes up. And immediately, after his baptism, after his temptation in the wilderness, immediately Jesus goes into Galilee and begins to teach. He begins to preach. Now, what do you think, if you were to write the script, knowing what you know of the Scriptures, knowing what you know about the the overall message of the Scripture, If you were the one writing the script, okay, Jesus, it's time to start preaching, what do you say first? What's the first thing that you would script? If you were writing that play, what would be the first thing that you, what were the first words that you would have come out of the mouth of Jesus of Nazareth? Well, it might surprise us that the very first words that Mark records and Matthew records the identical words The time is fulfilled, says Jesus, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew says kingdom of heaven, but it's the same expression. Repent and believe the gospel. The very first thing that Jesus does in his public ministry is to announce that the kingdom is here. The kingdom has come. Now that's significant. And, and what I want to do in a few moments in the sermon is to help tune our ears to, to give us the same kinds of, of ears to hear what the Jews would have heard at that time. And, and, it's, and where we can sympathize then with some of the errors that his hearers made, but also so that we can appreciate the full significance of what he has announced. So the sermon... We're going to look at verses 14 through 28 uh, this morning and again next week. And so what I want to do this morning under the title, The Kingdom Has Come, I'm going to treat this. I labored on how to to organize this material because I'm not necessarily going to be going verse by verse through all of the the paragraphs here, but I will be over the two weeks combined. So what I've decided to do is organize the material similar to the way you would find it organized in a catechism. 
And, 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 you know, in a catechism, if you've worked through, for example, our Baptist catechism, or if you've worked through one of the children's catechisms, they're very logical, very linear. And so that one question almost provokes the next question, and that question provokes another question, and you follow the thread. So that's what we're going to do. Jesus is, is, is announces the kingdom has come. The kingdom is here, and that ought to, in, in your mind, provoke a series of questions. And the first question is, what is the kingdom? And, and we ought not to answer that question too quickly because we need to recognize that among the apostles even, that question was a little squishy sometimes. Can we say it that way? But even in our day, depending on who you ask, depending on kind of what theological spectrum you're on, you may give a different answer. The Reformed have been consistent in giving an answer that is, I believe, is, is faithful to the Scripture. So we'll examine that. But then the question that comes immediately after that is, okay, every kingdom has a king. Who is the king of this kingdom? So that'll be the, the second heading, the second question we'll address. Well, then the question comes, okay, there's a king, there's a kingdom. Who are its citizens? Who may be a citizen of this kingdom. Then next week, to give you a, a little bit of a preview, Lord willing, the working title for next week's sermon is not, this week is the kingdom has come, and maybe paradoxically, next week the kingdom is coming. See, we live in this tension of already and not yet. The kingdom has come. It has been inaugurated, and yet the kingdom is coming. It is still taking ground. So we'll look at that next week and, and another series of questions that will emerge, for example, what authority does this kingdom have? How is the kingdom revealed? How is it manifested? How does it grow? How does it spread? So we'll wrestle with those next week. But first of all, have in mind those, th- those three questions as I read the text to you today. What is the kingdom of God? Who is the king? And who are its citizens? So let's read now the word of God, beginning in Mark chapter 1. I'm going to read 14 down through 28. Hear now the word of God. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum. And immediately, on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him, and they were all amazed. 
so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Our focus will be primarily on the first two verses and the last two verses of the section that I've just read, verses 14 and 15 and 27 and 28. That'll be our primary focus this morning, working through these these questions. And the first one that comes up is, what is the kingdom? Mark uses the term kingdom of God. Matthew uses the term kingdom of heaven, but we can use them interchangeably. There's no difference in substance between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. There are two expressions to describe the same thing. But what is this thing? What is it? And I think we need to labor here and attempt to answer this question well. Because here, if we don't answer this question correctly, as we begin to work through the other questions, our, our, we will increasingly be off course. Imagine, if you will, you were, you were a captain charting the course, steering your ship, or you're, you're, you're flying a plane and you've set a heading and you've accounted for the wind and, and the vectors and all those things that I can't calculate. But you think, I'm pretty close. I'm only two degrees off. But over a course of a thousand miles, you'll be a long way from the target. We, we met a man years ago who was a naval aviator in World War II. And he told us the story. He, they were out on a bombing run. And they were on their way back, and he disobeyed a direct order. His squadron commander had miscalculated their coordinates back to the aircraft carrier. And he, over the radio, had argued back and forth with this commanding officer and said, your, your, your calculations are off. And the officer insisted he was right. Mr. Fulton was the only one who survived. His squadron never returned. He went with his own calculations, left the squadron, and made it safely. But everyone else, they were off by just a little bit, and they never found the carrier. So we need need to be faithful to the text, faithful not only to this text, but all of scriptures we think about and meditate on. What is the kingdom of God? Even among the disciples, the concept of the kingdom provoked a lot of confusion. You remember this, even immediately prior to our Lord Jesus' ascension into heaven. Here's the disciples were gathered with him. He's about to be caught up into the clouds. And remember what the, the, the last and final question they ask? Is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They, they still didn't get it. And, and yet, rather than a harsh rebuke, Jesus gently corrected them and says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. So the question is, what is the kingdom of God? And as Jesus begins his public ministry, he makes this statement, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, a kingdom, in in, in the most simplest definition, is a realm or a territory over which a king rules, right? It's it's either a geographic area or some other quantifiable realm area or territory over which a king rules. Now, we could say in one sense that God, the creator, rules over everything and always has, and we would be right to say that. We would be right to say that. The psalmist says it in Psalm 47, for the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And of course, in Romans 1, Paul indicts 
all of humanity, all of those who have rebelled against him and said it's for this reason that God has given them over to a debased mind is because they do not worship and serve God as God. They don't bow before him as king. It wasn't because they weren't circumcised. or It wasn't because they, they weren't observing the Passover. It's because they did not honor God as God. They did not honor him as creator. So in, in one sense, God is king over everything and always has been. Even before time was, God was king. But Jesus prefaces this by saying the time is fulfilled. He's, he's making a creation reference because Time was something that God created. And so he says, in the, or so the time is now fulfilled. There is a moment in time when something's going to change. Something that we're going to see is, was foretold, but now is actually coming about in time and space. Jesus speaks here, I think, of something far more specific than than God's general kingship over all creation. He speaks of a kingdom that's coming in time. God has reigned as king over all creation since before he made it. So we we want to define, we'll start with this working definition of the kingdom of God. It is the spiritual rule of God over the hearts and lives of his people on earth and in heaven through the promised descendant of David who will reign and rule forever. So this is a catechism question. What is the kingdom of God? It's the spiritual rule of God over the hearts and lives of his people on earth and in heaven through the promised descendant of David who will reign and rule forever. Now let's work this out. Jesus speaks of the sovereign rule of God over the hearts, over the minds, over the lives of his people according to the promise that he made to his people. The kingdom of God is an eternal kingdom. It's it's a spiritual kingdom, but it has observable effects in time and space. So we have a spiritual kingdom, but with physical ramifications, physical effects. And we can think of the manifestation of the kingdom. Okay, what does this look like? How does, how does the kingdom manifest it? If it's a spiritual kingdom, it means our, our, our eyes, our human eyes can't see it. But there are footprints. There's evidence of the kingdom that we can see. And we can think about it three ways. Kind of past, present, and future. Looking at the, from the perspective of the past, we can say the kingdom of God is the elect of every age. So as you read through the Old Testament, all of those who believed the promises of God, all those who rested on those promises are are in the kingdom. The same kingdom that Jesus is announcing has come. They were looking forward to an inheritance, a kingdom that would come. Jesus says the time is fulfilled it has come. So we think the elect in every age. When the present, how do we think about the kingdom? How is it manifested? Well, the church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom in this age. Now, I want to point out something in the way that I worded that. The church, I didn't say the church is the kingdom of God. 
So the church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God. Why is that important? Well, for one example, Rome claims to be the kingdom on earth. You see, there's, a, there's a, an equating of the kingdom and of the church, and they claim to be the expression of the kingdom of God. In fact, they, more than just the expression of it, they claim to be the kingdom, which means they have a right to rule even over God's word. We reject that, and we say, no, the church is the visible manifestation. It's the visible display. The world can see the church as evidence of the kingdom of God. In our Confession of Faith, in chapter 26, which is the chapter on the church, in paragraph 3, just, I'm not going to read the whole paragraph, but it says, Christ always has had and ever shall have a kingdom in this world to the end thereof of such as believe in him and make profession of his name. See, God has always preserved a remnant, hasn't he? The scriptures are very clear. In every age, there was a remnant. God has preserved, as he told Elijah, there, there are those that have not bowed the knee to Baal. I've always preserved a remnant as evidence of my kingdom. So we think about the, the kingdom manifesting in the past, in the present, but also in the future. We look forward to Christ's return in glory to establish his spiritual and physical reign. See, there, there, there's a day coming when the Lord will, will, will bring in a new heavens and new earth, new Jerusalem, and, and we will not be disembodied spirits floating around on the clouds for eternity. We will inhabit glorified bodies. We will enjoy a new created world over which the Lord Jesus Christ rules directly and completely and perfectly. So in the past, it's the elect of every age. In the present, the church is the visible manifestation of the kingdom. In the future, we will have a physical reality that corresponds with the kingdom of God. So it's true that in this age to come, Christ is going to reign physically over a new creation. But see, the Jews in Christ's day were confused about the order of things. They saw, and I'll read a sampling of some of these passages to you in a moment, but they, they saw the prophecies in the Old Testament about a king coming and ruling and reigning and overthrowing their adversaries, but they ignored the other passages that spoke of a servant who would come who would suffer, a Messiah who would be persecuted a Messiah who would bear the sins of his people. But the ordinary people in Israel were already had in their minds this, this sense of anticipation of a kingdom. If you were a Jew and you were, you were well taught in the Old Testament, if, if you were grown, if you'd grown up in a faithful Jewish home, you would have known the prophets, you would have known Moses, you would have known the scriptures, and you would have had a sense of, there's a king coming. There's, there's one who's going to deliver us from the jackboot of Roman oppression. The Jews had heard all of the stories. They'd read their scriptures. They knew of the, the days of old, the days of glory when David ruled, and then Solomon ruled. And Oh, those were the good old days, right? but we rebelled against God. We stubbornly refused his commands. We, we ignored all of his prophets. In fact, we killed his prophets, and God 
sent us into exile. He allowed our enemies to overtake us. And now what? Are those promises null and void? Has God neglected his own word? But later on in Mark, we're going to see when Jesus makes his final procession into Jerusalem, beginning that what we know as Passion Week, and and we have this this parade of people laying out palm branches before him. And and remember what they said? This is in Mark 11, verse 9, And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. See, ordinary Jewish people had a sense of longing for this kingdom to come. John Gill makes this comment. He said, the Pharisees held the tradition of the elders and the doctrine of justification by the works of the law. And the Sadducees denied the resurrection of the dead, and it was a prevailing opinion among them all that the Messiah would be a temporal king and set up an earthly kingdom in this world. Wherefore, Jesus exhorts them to change their minds, to relinquish this notion, assuring them that though he would be a king and would have a kingdom, which was near at hand, yet it would be a heavenly and not an earthly one. So when Jesus arrives on the scene and announces, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, you can imagine how the Jews would have heard this. They would have heard, wonderful, we're in for a political revolution that's going to go in our favor. There's going to be a restoration of our economic, political, and geographic superiority. That's what they were hearing, but that's not what Jesus was teaching. So what is the kingdom of God then? As we come back to that question, it is the spiritual rule of God over the hearts and over the lives of his people, both on earth and in heaven, through the promised descendant of David, who will reign and rule forever. You know, we recited together just a few few moments ago in our corporate prayer time, we recited the, the, the Lord's Prayer. And one of the petitions in that is, thy kingdom come. And and so throughout the history of the church, there's been a a meditation of what does that mean, thy kingdom come? When the Orthodox Catechism that we we use from time to time, this is a kind of a baptized version of the Heidelberg Catechism. But it asks that question, what does the second request mean, meaning thy kingdom come? And the answer is this, your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Keep your church strong and add to it. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your word. Do this until your kingdom is so complete and perfect that in it you are all in all. See, that's our prayer. That's our prayer. As we say, the kingdom has come. We pray for the kingdom to come, and we'll make that distinction a little bit more next week. It has come, and it is coming. We pray that God would rule us by his word and spirit. See, it is the spiritual rule over not only our our hearts, but our lives. So it is a spiritual kingdom, but it has tangible effects. 
if, it's, if, if, the kingdom, if the kingdom ethic, the kingdom laws, the kingdom rule, the, the gospel of the kingdom is not producing in you effects in your home, in your family, man, if this doesn't change and shape how you shepherd your wives and children, then you don't understand the kingdom. Moms, if this doesn't shape and, and help inform your priorities as a wife and a mother, then you don't understand the kingdom. Young people, if this doesn't shape your thinking in terms of how you plan for your lives, and as you make your plans, and you think about jobs and vocations and who you might marry, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those other things that he knows you need. Don't worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to put on, what you're going to eat. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these other things are going to be added to you. See, there's a spiritual rule of the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts, but it has to take tangible expression. It has to work its way out in tangible, observable ways. But ultimately, finally, the kingdom of God is defined and it's encompassed by its king. The kingdom of of God is not defined geographically. It's not defined ethnically. It's not defined socially. It's not defined politically. It's defined and encompassed in its king. And every kingdom must have a king. So that's our next question then. Who is the king? Who is the king? Well, the short answer is it's Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah who's promised throughout the Old Testament. And and what we find is the beginning with the establishment of the Davidic covenant. God made a firm covenant, an eternal covenant with King David. And Israel has been waiting and waiting and waiting for the fulfillment of that promise from God. In 2 Samuel and you can, you can read through that whole chapter. It's a wonderful chapter. But in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, we read this. When your days are fulfilled, this is the Lord through Nathan the prophet speaking to David. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Notice that offspring is singular and not plural. In the book of Galatians, Paul makes a big deal out of the fact that it's singular and not plural. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. But then you probably know what happened shortly after this. At the end of David's reign, his son Solomon became king in his place. And Solomon ruled, and the, and the kingdom prospered politically. It prospered geographically. It prospered economically. But what happened with Solomon? Exactly what the Lord said would happen. His heart was led astray by his many foreign wives. And when Solomon died, and his kingdom went to his son, kingdom was split. The ten tribes in the north in Israel and the two tribes in the south in Judah. And and increasingly, we see those both tribes, or both Israel and Judah, rebelling against against their God. And first Israel, and then later Judah, would be handed over by God to their enemies. They would be taken off into exile. 
they were banished from the promised land. And, and you have to think the question would have, they would have wrestled with the question, was, is that it? Have we blown it? Was God's promise true or not? Is there still a promise abiding upon us of a future king? Or is that just myth and legends that our great-great-great-grandparents talked about? But no. In fact, over and over and over again, throughout the period of the exiles, God spoke to his people through the prophets, We could easily look at Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Zechariah and many others. I'm going to give you just a couple of quotes. In 1st and Jeremiah 30, listen to this. And again, this is is what permeated their thinking. This This was sort of the ethos of those faithful Jews. In fact, if you remember, after his crucifixion, there's a man described as Joseph of Arimathea, who was, he's described as a member of the council, but one who was seeking and longing for the kingdom. He was a representative of those faithful Jews who were actually looking for the kingdom still. In Jeremiah 30, in verse 8, we read this, And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king whom I will raise up for them. Or in Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see at this point why it's important to answer the question first, what is the kingdom? Because it's natural, I think, and at least understandable for the Jews, even the disciples, when Jesus begins to speak of the kingdom, to think, well, this is what Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, or Hosea, or Zechariah, or Daniel were talking about. When the foreign invaders who currently rule over us will be dispatched and we will have our kingdom again. But when Jesus opens his mouth and proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand, surely you can imagine the kinds of reactions that he would get. Some, is this true? Can it be? Is this even possible? Scriptures record that some responded, well, nothing's... Nothing good has ever come out of Nazareth, so this can't be true. Luke records one of the responses, isn't this Joseph's son? He can't possibly be king. He can't possibly, I mean, imagine that. This is Joseph's boy. We've known him since he was little. This can't be the king. But those were the kinds of responses. But it was true, and it still is true. Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited messianic king. So who is this king? Who is the king of the kingdom that Jesus announced? It's him. See, John came, John the Baptist came as the forerunner and said, make way, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. But John also said, I'm not he. I'm not the king. 
In fact, the one that comes after me, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelace. But Jesus says, I am he. And we're going to see by his actions, not by his explicit words yet, but by his actions, he is the king. Look down to verse 27, back to Mark chapter 1. So he's teaching in the synagogue, and, and there is this demon-possessed man, and the demon within him cries out, this is in verse 24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him, and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And here's verse 27, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Mark has already taken note that when Jesus began to just, before this event happens, as he's teaching, the people are able to note. There's a difference here. The way that the scribes teach, all their teaching is man-made traditions. The scribes were some of the interpreters of the scriptures, but they were teaching their, the rabbinic tradition. They were, they were teaching the traditions of men. And Jesus stands and teaches on the authority of God's word. He said, this is different. He's not preaching in the same way that they are. He's preaching in an entirely different way. And then, and then they marvel even more that even an unclean spirit obeys him. Jesus just speaks. There's no ritual. There, there, there's, there's no holy water. There, there's no, no exorcism. Jesus just says, get out. come out from him. And, and the evil spirit knows even before Jesus speaks, he has to obey him. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus explains this kind of phenomenon, and he says, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. See, this is direct evidence of the kingdom. This is the king speaking, and he's demonstrating his authority of, in the spiritual realm over both heaven and and earth. Jesus is the promised one about whom the Holy Spirit would declare through the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians 1, making known to us, in verse 9, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So the Apostle Paul is explaining what Jesus was demonstrating here. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his own son to unite all things in him. That's kingdom language. To unite all things in him in heaven and things on earth. Both John and Jesus, again, announce that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's come. And the scriptures make it plain to us that Jesus of Nazareth is that long-awaited king. He's the true son of David. He's also David's Lord. See, saints, we're not waiting. We're not waiting upon Jesus to become king. We're not waiting for some future time when Jesus returns, at which point he will be king or become king. No, he is king. 
when he, when he was crucified, dead, and buried, he ascended into heaven, and he was coronated at that time as king. That's why Paul says in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is, in fact, kurios. He is the Lord. And it's at that title, at that name, Lord, that every knee will bow. It's the equivalent of king. So we're not waiting upon Jesus to become the king. He is actively ruling right now as king. Well, then that raises the next question, doesn't it? We have a king. We have a kingdom. Who are its citizens? Because we, 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 we truly confess that God is, in a general sense, king over everything. He is the great king over all the earth. But there's a particular way in which Jesus is speaking of the kingdom of God. It's a spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of his people. Well, who are they? Who are the citizens of this kingdom? And throughout history, a, num- a number of answers have been proposed. Well, anyone who is of a certain ethnicity, if you are Jewish, if you, are, if you can trace your DNA back to Abraham, or geographically, if you are part of Israel, you could be considered a member of the kingdom. Others throughout history have perverted that even further and, and, and made it political, economic, social, or still, in other ways, genetic. If your parents were part of the kingdom, then you were part of the kingdom. But that's not what the scriptures teach. It's not what Jesus teaches here. He says, who, who, if you, who may become a citizen of the kingdom? And again, if you had asked Jews at the time, their answer surely would have been, all those who are sons of Abraham. All those who are circumcised, according to the scriptures. Those are members of the kingdom. But, but Jesus said to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. He distinguished his kingdom as being a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom. It's not a kingdom of our blood. It's a kingdom of his blood received by faith. The citizens of this spiritual kingdom are citizens according to spiritual promises and spiritual means. Not carnal means or worldly promises or worldly means. So again, throughout history, if you were baptized, for example, as a citizen of Rome, you were also a citizen of the kingdom of God. If you were baptized as a, as a member of the Church of England in the 16th century, 17th century, you were also considered a member of the kingdom of God. It was political. But that's not, again, what the scriptures teach. The kingdom is, doesn't come through worldly means, through carnal means, or through carnal promises. So the answer is, or the question is, who is, is permitted? Who may become citizens of this kingdom of God? And the answer is, all those who repent and believe the gospel of the king. Now, what's very interesting here, if you turn back to Mark chapter 1, in verse, back to verse 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, the geography is significant here in, with respect to the answer, part of the answer to our question, who may become citizens? 
Because this is, this is a, a, a kingdom with unimaginable glory, unimaginable privilege. And so, because our minds are sort of trained in worldly ways, we tend to think like this. Well, surely the, king, the kingdom will come to the privileged first. The kingdom will come to those who are, represent the financial pillars of Israel the political pillars of Israel, the religious leaders of Israel. That's where the kingdom will come first, right? Jesus goes to Galilee. Now, if Galilee had, if they'd had railroads back then, we could have said Galilee was on the wrong side of the tracks. Galilee had a reputation of being this backwater place, and that's precisely where the kingdom is announced first. Listen to John Gilligan. He says, Having called four of his disciples, he took a tour throughout Galilee, a country mean and despicable, inhabited by persons poor, illiterate, vile, and wicked. Such had the first fruits of Christ's ministry and messages of his grace, which shows the freeness, sovereignty, and riches of his abounding goodness. Amen. It doesn't matter where you came from, either in terms of your genetics or your economics, or your politics, or your ethnicity, doesn't matter. The citizenship in this kingdom is available to all who will believe the commands of the king. Gospel citizenship does not depend upon our family of origin, doesn't depend upon our education, or our social status, or or any kind of worldly acclaim or success. It depends only upon the king. What does this kingdom demand? What is is required in order to gain citizenship? We've had a number in our midst who who are looking into the process of citizenship to become American citizens. And and we have a number in our midst who are either either because they work helping people become citizens or they're working to become citizens themselves, and they know the process pretty well. It's not an easy process. It's an expensive process. In fact, in Paul's day, to become a Roman citizen was no small thing. In fact, you remember that there's, at one point Paul's arrested and he's having this exchange with a, with a Roman soldier, the Roman centurion, and, and, and Paul's being mistreated. He's being beaten, and, and Paul says, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't treat me this way. And the centurion says, how are you a Roman citizen? I purchased this citizenship at a great price. Remember Paul's answer? I was born a citizen of Rome. I'm from Tarsus, no small city. I'm a citizen by birth in Rome. And and immediately, they took the handcuffs off of him. Oh, mister, we're sorry. Can we we get you a drink of water? Can we help you? And can we let you talk to the consulate? We'll get the ambassador here. And they, can we just, you know, can you just leave the city now? And Paul says, no, 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 no. You make them come and escort me out of jail. Citizenship meant a lot. And so Paul's drawing on those kinds of parallels as he writes in his, in his letters. But Jesus says here, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Do you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? Do you want to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? There's no paperwork to fill out. There's no waiting period. There's no ambassador that you have to go see. 
There's no mediator between God and you except the king who says, come. The only intermediary, the only only attorney you need is Jesus who says, repent and believe the gospel. Now, what is that command? What's entailed in that? Well, believe, first of all, that Jesus is the promised Messiah and Lord. Believe that, that I am the king, Jesus says. Believe that I am the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament had said, generation after generation after generation of living in exile, and the prophets continue to come through the voice of God, proclaiming the voice of God, saying, I am still going to keep my promise. I'm still going to raise up a king who will reign forever. Believe that. Believe that I am the one who has come. Believe that I am going to reign as king and that I will have all authority over your life to command your obedience, but also the authority to pardon your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness by my own blood. I've purchased you. If you will simply believe that, then my death was for you. My sacrifice was for you. My atoning work was for you. My cleansing was for you. Will you believe that? there's two commands and there we can consider them two sides of the very same coin repent and believe believe who jesus is believe what he that he is truly accomplishing this work on your behalf but also repent repent and we 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 examined this more several weeks ago when we looked at john the baptist when john the baptist comes that's his opening uh sermon is repent the kingdom of heaven is at hand And certainly, repentance requires an acknowledgement of our sin, not only our sinful deeds, our sinful words, but the polluted well of our hearts from which all those things flow. And you've heard me say this, we we are not sinners because we do sinful things, we do sinful things because we are born as sinners. We have a sinful nature, it's a polluted well, and all those things come out of us. So we need to acknowledge that, and, and, and our repentance means acknowledging that before God and saying, I can't fix me. I can't change that. I can't change the fact that anger wells up from inside of me un- in an unjustified way, even against those whom I love. I can't change the fact that my eyes lust after that which I ought not to have, that my heart yearns for things that God has not given to me. I can't change those things, but God has promised that he will cleanse me, and that he will create righteousness in me. But repentance is more than just that. It is also a a doing away with any notion that I can become right with God by my works. See, the Jews had embraced. See, the, 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 the Sadducees had dispensed with any notion of eternal life at all. It's just, this is it. The Pharisees still believed in a resurrection. They still believed in a life to come. But the way that you were made right with God was through keeping the law rigorously and being justified by your works. And Jesus said, that has to go. You're reconciled into my kingdom. You become citizens of my kingdom by faith alone. By my merits, not yours. The king's merits, not his servant's. But also it's a repentance of this idea of viewing the kingdom as earthly or as material or as political. Sometimes we need to turn away from that. And maybe some of you need to turn away from that idea that the kingdom as God is advanced politically. 
We just got to get the right guy in office so that the kingdom of God can flourish. There's a need to repent of our our idolatry and our unbelief. And that's certainly, all those things are demanded by the king. And we looked at some of those when we looked at John the Baptist. But here, the the call to repentance, I think, is more fundamental. In some ways, it's more basic than that. When Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel, he's calling for a wholesale change of our minds, of our hearts, of our lives from the inside out. It's a fundamental change of our perspective. See, by nature, we're focused on the here and the now. We're focused on this life. We're focused on the things of this world. That's, that's, that's our nature. But here he's calling us to look to himself, to look to me as king, to look to my kingdom, look to my interests, look to my glory, look to, to how you can serve my people. William Hendrickson, I think this is very helpful. He says, genuine sorrow for sin and an earnest resolution to break with the evil past is at times even emphasized. But the word used here in the original, meaning this word translated as repent, in the original looks forward as well as backward. It means be converted. It means undergo a radical change of heart and life, a complete turnabout of life. The positive side of conversion is given further emphasis in the added words and believe the gospel. Such believing or faith implies knowledge, assent, and confidence. Saints, this this is the king that we serve is placed before us. The kingdom of God is placed before us. And and the way of of becoming citizens of this kingdom is put before us. There's a wholesale change of our minds. The Bible calls repentance. There's a believing that Jesus is who the scriptures say that he is, who he says that he is. That he is king, that he is Lord, that he is sovereign. That he has every right to command our obedience, to command our our hearts be conformed to his. Citizenship in the kingdom of God belongs to all who have or who will put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. If you want a citizenship test, that's it. Repent and believe the gospel. Paul would go on to say to the Philippian church, and keep in mind the Philippian church was was largely an outpost of retired Roman soldiers. And part of the benefit, part of of the reward for serving in the the Roman military was citizenship. So you can imagine the the, the complexion of that congregation. A lot of former military guys there who had a a great deal of of hard-earned pride in their citizenship. They'd earned it the hard way, many of them. And Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The kingdom of God has come to earth. Jesus announced the time is fulfilled. 
Now, he's speaking about a particular event at his arrival in Galilee. But there also may be a way we can interpret this more, or ways that you ought to interpret this more personally. If you are not in Christ, the writer of Hebrews, quoting from the psalmist, says, Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts, but today is the day of salvation. For those who are here today who are not in Christ, who are not citizens of the heavenly kingdom, and you are not citizens by birth, you are not citizens because your parents are here, you're not citizens because you've, they've made you be here, you are only citizens if you have believed the gospel of the king and sought the grace of repentance from him. The kingdom of God has come to earth, and, and may it be, may, may the spirit of God be mighty today, to show you that the time is fulfilled for you. That today is that day. That the king has made his announcement in your presence today. And you are obligated to hear him and to obey him, to believe him, and to seek the grace of repentance. Amen. Be reconciled to this king. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful for the mercy that you've shown to us. We are grateful for the testimony of those men that you, upon whom you breathed out the scriptures. Grateful for, for Mark's labors as your word was breathed out through him so that we can read and study and in a sense, see our Savior, and we can hear His commands. Lord, will you be gracious to us today? Grant to your people uh, the grace of ongoing repentance. Increase our faith. Help us to believe, and, and to continue in believing these precious and very great promises. For those who are here today who are not in Christ, Maybe those who once made a profession and have since rejected it. Maybe those whose faith is weak and who need the grace of their king to restore them and strengthen them. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you will accomplish that work today. That for the, for the glory of our king, that you would cause men and women and boys and girls to be reconciled to you today. We ask this, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen.